Well, we're coming here closer to the end of First Chronicles, and, and more importantly, closer to the end of, of King David's reign. And what I've decided to do is to spend this week and also next week and maybe the week after looking at this chapter because I think there's so much here. It's a, it's a very interesting chapter because um, it tells us a lot about David in a way that we haven't really heard before in First Chronicles. I've entitled this sort of mini-series as a role model for failure. <clears throat> a role model for failure. What do you do when you fail? What do you do when you feel like you failed? You fail God, you fail people, you failed yourself. What do you do uh, when you feel like you failed? And so I've entitled this uh, series here a little bit as we continue through the, the book of First Chronicles, A Role Model for Failure. And today, I want us to look at particularly one issue that I think David has here, and that is obeying. Here it comes. <clears throat> at the end of David's life, He's been a king for about 40 years now, and until now, according to Chronicles, things have been going really well, right? David is a great king. He's a, he's a great military king. He's a great military king, and that's why the previous chapters just before this, it tells of some of his exploits uh, that he had just experienced with the Ammonites uh, and the Philistines and so on. And it's a great time of success according to the Chronicles. It doesn't get better than this for King David. But here, at the end of David's life as king, just when you least expect it, we're told that he does something wrong, something God doesn't approve of. Uh, he fails, and because he fails, that not only puts him under God's judgment, but the people under him under God's judgment. And this is interesting here. The reason I point this out is because we need to remember here that Chronicles is a selective history. And all along, the author of Chronicles is trying to present a king, an almost perfect king, in contrast to King Saul. Remember King Saul? He was the bad one. And so he doesn't mention in the Chronicles, he doesn't mention some of the issues, uh, some of the events, some of the sins that David committed that 2 Samuel talks about. So, for example, one of the most famous stories about David's life is the story of Bathsheba. Remember that story of Bathsheba? David utterly failed in that. It was utterly sinful, and it creates a huge mess for David, and he gets called out for it, and he seeks repentance. But that event is missing from 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles, there's nothing but good from David. That's how he's presented. He's portrayed overall as a wonderful and, and great king until now. Until now. And you've got to ask the question, why? Why at the very end of David's career does the Chronicle decide to talk about this one incident, this one failure. I mean, if you wanted to present a good and faithful king, why end his career on this note? How is that an encouragement to his readers? And I think there are probably two reasons, at least for this reason, one more theological, maybe one more personal. But in order to get there, I want us to see a couple things along the way. And here in our passage, I want us to see what the act of disobedience really was. And secondly, I want us to see what obedience to God really is. What the act of disobedience really was and what the obedience of God really is. So what's the problem here in our passage? <clears throat> well, at least here in First Chronicles, this is the first real time where David fails. Uh, we're told there's temptation in verse 1. He commands Joab, the chief military officer, I want you to go and number Israel so that I may know their number. So basically, he's told to take a census throughout all Israel, a census of his own people. And we're told in 2 Samuel that that probably would take about 10 months. 10 months, and Joab, we're told, says, 
this is a very bad idea. He abhorred the idea, we're told. And to make a long story short, so does God. So in verse 7, God says, or the, the prophet says, God was displeased. It was wrong. And you've got to think about this. This is why this passage is strange. Why, why is that wrong? It's strange, isn't it? Why was it wrong for David to, to take a census, to count all his own people? What was such a terrible sin that God would judge David and all of Israel? And I'm going to try to answer this question because I think we get a hint from verse 5. In verse 5, after Joab goes, counts all the people, he reports the numbers. He says there's 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. In other words, the census wasn't just about counting any people, but particularly counting men who drew the sword. In other words, who could fight. David, the military king, was counting the size of his army. He was estimating his military potential. He was looking at how many actual and how many potential soldiers he had in his nation. That's what he was doing, I think. Now, what are you doing when you count how much you have? What are you doing when you count how much money you have in your bank account? What are we doing when we number the people who follow us, who work under you? What are we doing when we number the degrees that we've earned in our education? Keep track of the number of good grades we've had. The awards, maybe, that we've attained. What are we doing when we do this? We are estimating ourselves, aren't we? We are trying to assure ourselves how much you're worth, how much influence you might have, how much power or potential you own, and how much security maybe you've attained. And oftentimes, when you estimate yourself, it's not just by yourself. You estimate yourself in comparison to others around you. To others around you. And here was David, and he was counting his army. He was estimating his power. He was looking at what he could rely on. And it's what you do. It's what all the other nations of his day did. You count how big your army is because the bigger your army, the more power you had. And you compare yourself to your neighbors. If your army was larger, you had power over them. You could conquer them. You could enslave them and grow your nation. But if your army is too small, then you run the risk of being conquered and being enslaved. So you might say it's probably a smart thing to do for anyone to count how many you have in your army. And it was. Because it's what any and every leader, any and every king, any and every nation would do. And yet, in our passage, verse 7, God is displeased. Why? And I think the simple answer is this. Why was God displeased? Because it was what every other nation, every other leader, and every other king would do. But David was supposed to be different. He was supposed to be different from all the other kings. Israel, God's nation, was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be different from all the other nations. Why? Why were they supposed to be different? Because no other king, no other nation had a God like David's. 
They were to be the light of the nations. They were to be the salt of the earth. They were to be the source of hope because they would show all the other nations that they flourished. Not because of military might, but because they trusted in a God who promised to glorify himself through the blessings of David and all Israel. Think about this. David didn't grow. He didn't become who he was because he was so gifted and powerful. He grew because of a God who was always with him and made promises to him and blessed him. Israel didn't rise to where they were because they were such great people. It's because they had a great God who loved her and watched over her and blessed her. And so both David and Israel were to live by faith and not by sight, as Paul would say. Not by looking at their own potential or their own strength or their own size. They were to live by faith in the promises that God had made and trust that he would do what he said he would do. To grow a nation for himself. To have it prosper for his glory. That was his promise. Remember the covenant promise? He made the promise to Abraham. He made it to Isaac. He made it to Jacob. He made it to Moses. He makes it to David in chapter 17. That Israel would be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. As numerous as the sand upon the seashore. They were to trust in that promise. And yet here David's counting his army. And it's like he's saying, well, that all may be true, but I need some reassurance. I need some reassurance here that Israel's going to prosper. Let me hear once again how big my army is. David's counting. And I think in his counting, he's turning away from God, and he's turning to men and to numbers. Which is more tangible, more visible, rather than looking to God with an eye of faith. And for that, I think, God was displeased. I think that was David's disobedience. I get it. Uh, pastors, especially me, we are always tempted by numbers. And uh, I, I think I've been hardened in Sojourner Presbyterian Church to not look at numbers. Um, but, you know, we compare ourselves to other churches and to other pastors. Oh, that church, that pastor, wow. How many, how many do you have? How big is your church? Uh, a couple thousand. How big is your church? Uh, 50. You know. And I'm going to be very honest. It, it, there, there is this, you know, and so I don't look at the numbers. I, I, don't, I, I don't look at the attendance as much. I, I don't look at how much often we get in, and, you know, it, because it's not unimportant. But it's not the most important thing. That's what I keep telling myself. And it's so easy, though. It's so easy to be focused and fixated just on what you see in front of you rather than on what God sees and what God has called you to do. In other words, I think what we see here is that at the end of David's life, I think he started to lose touch with the reality of the promises of God and his covenant. And as a result, as a representative king, the consequence of his sin affect the nation. God comes in with judgment, sends a plague, kills 70,000 men, which ironically shrinks David's army, right? Takes away what he was relying on, right? His military might. And he has to rely on God. And that's why I think God is saying it was wrong. Like everyone else around, 
You're trusting more. You're relying more in your own abilities, your own strength, like everyone else does. You're looking at your numbers more than you are looking at me. Rather than trusting and obeying me, you went your own way. You took things into your own hands. You acted like everything depends on you. And that the promises I've made, the things that I've done, who I am really doesn't matter. You say you believe God exists, but you live like he doesn't. You say you believe in God, but you live like it really doesn't matter. Does that sound familiar? Is that, is that relevant to you today? Are you saying you believe in God, or even maybe that there is a God, but you still live like a functional atheist, as if it doesn't matter, like everything still depends on you, on what you can do, and what you've done, and what you have, and who you know. And so for that, I think, at least in this case, I think that's why God says taking the census is wrong. But I want you to know, just to be clear, okay, let's move on. The reason I gave for why this was a sin for David is something that I have, I guess, deduced from what I know about David from the whole Bible, but not necessarily from this passage. Did you notice this? Look. When you look at the text, it doesn't tell you why God thought taking a census was wrong, does it? It doesn't tell you why Job thought doing the census was such a bad idea. It just says that it was wrong and he got punished for it, but we're not told specifically why. Why? And this is, I think, if the first point doesn't, isn't relevant to you, then this, this is, I think, becomes more relevant because you and I, we live in a culture that always needs to know why. We are always asking why. If I ask you to stand on one leg for five minutes and then spin around ten times, immediately you'd ask, but why? And if we don't know why or if we disagree with the reasons for why, we, we won't do it. And that's how most of us, if not all of us, really are. We question everything and especially we question authority. And if there's not a good reason, or if I don't know why, then I'm not going to do it. I am not going to listen. And I think this is especially particular in our culture. I mean, if you look at some of the Eastern cultures out there who live in an authoritarian world, they never question authority as much. You kind of just did what you were told. And there are cultures out there still today, but not us. We are more enlightened, aren't we? We know of the abuses and the exploitation of bad authority. So we're not going to fall for that, are we? And that's how we think. And there are good reasons for thinking this way. Don't get me wrong. There are good reasons for thinking this way. But if this is the attitude that we have, it becomes problematic when we think about God and obedience. Because here's the thing. Part of believing that there is a God, I think, uh, part of following God means that we ought to obey him. That if he exists, then he deserves our obedience because after all, he's the creator and I'm his creature and he expects obedience. But the thing is, even though we know that God says something is wrong, it doesn't always mean that we get to know why he says it's wrong. We can guess, kind of like what we did here with David's issue. 
we know that he tells us to do this and this and this, but, but don't do that and that and that, but we don't always exactly know why, do we? We don't always agree sometimes, do we? Sometimes what he says makes sense to us, but sometimes it, it just doesn't. But here's the thing. If you're going to bring in the attitude, well, <clears throat> because it doesn't make sense to me, because I don't know why, or I disagree with why, if you only, make, if you only obey when it does make sense to you if, you, if you only obey only when you understand why, if you only obey only when you agree, that's not obedience. You've just arrived at a consensus. It's, it's just, uh, you've arrived at an agreement and not necessarily obedience. But how do you do that with a holy God? An infinitely holy, holy God. Here, here's, here's, what, here's what I'm trying to say. Let me try to illustrate it uh, this way. If you have kids, uh, young kids, uh, if you know young kids, you know, as a parent or as a guardian or as an uncle, aunt, whoever it is, is tell, tell your three or four-year-old, hey, when you cross the street, I want you to hold my hand and I want you to look both ways before you cross the street. I want you to do this every time we get to the street. And the kid says, why? Now, as a good parent, I know some of you try to explain to your kid why you should do this because you're going to die. If you want to live till they're 13 or 14, you better listen. But even then, do you think they fully understand why you're telling them what to do? How can they? They're, they're too young. They're just children. And if we agree with this, then isn't this analogous to our relationship with God? When you're dealing with an infinitely huge God whose mind is, is infinitely greater than your finite mind, what makes you think that you could even begin to understand everything God does and why? Some things will make sense, but some, some things won't. But, but how can it be otherwise when you're dealing with a God like this? I mean, to me it makes sense. If you're dealing with a God like this in the Bible, it makes sense that some things won't make sense. At least not to, to my finite little brain. But if you're only going to follow God who has to make sense to you in every way, then what you're really saying is this. You won't follow a God who is greater than your brain. You won't follow a God who is wiser than you or smarter than you. Elizabeth Elliot, the famous wife of that famous missionary, Jim Elliot, who died very early in his ministry, got killed by a tribe's people that he was trying to share the gospel with. She lost him. And this is what she says. This is one of her famous quotes. She says this, quote, God is God. Because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere else but in his holy will. That is, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to do or was he up to. I will find rest nowhere else but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. And if God is God, then sometimes his will will be unspeakably beyond your largest notions of what he's up to. Because he's God and you're not. And the only option, I think, is this. Let God be God, trust and obey, because there is no other way. Trust and obey, because there is no other way. 
And that's been our struggle from the very beginning. Even in the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam, don't eat that fruit. Never told him why, right? Never told him why. And they broke it. But the test, you know, it was probably any fruit. It was probably any tree. It doesn't really, maybe nothing particular, uh, special about the tree. But I think the test was, I just want to see if you obey me because I'm God. And they wouldn't let God be God. And when you only obey, when you only worship because it makes perfect sense to you, I think you're not letting God be God sometimes. Trust and obey because there is no other way. So the only question left then is this. But how do I know? How do I know that I can trust him? How do I know that he has my best interest in mind? And if that's your question, look at David's story. We don't know why the census was clearly wrong. I think we can infer it and say that's probably correct, why it was wrong, but judgment fell nevertheless. And then in verse 15, it says that God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem, but as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw he relented. In other words, he showed mercy, and he said to the angel who's working destruction, it's enough, stay your hand. In other words, God spares Israel. He shows him mercy. The hand of judgment was held back. Look, Adam and Eve, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. They don't die physically. God spares Adam and Eve. This world is terrible. I'm going to judge it with a flood. But Noah's family gets spared along with Noah. Isaac was to be offered as a sacrifice to, Abra uh, uh, to God by Abraham. But just as Abraham was about to, to kill Isaac, what happens? He spares Isaac. David and all Israel here in our passage were to be completely judged. At the very last minute, they're spared. In fact, I want to say, everywhere you see God's judgment in the Bible, I think there was also mercy. But do you know one place where God did not hold back? Where God did not hold back? Isaiah 53, verse 5, he says, He was pierced for our transgressions, but he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only place in the Bible where God doesn't hold back his judgment is at the cross. Does he have your best interest in mind? Does he have your best interest? Look at the cross. Just look at it. If I didn't have your best interest in mind, would, would I give you my son? Why would I die so that you could live? Why would I be rejected so that you could be accepted? I bore the punishment so you could have peace. I was wounded so you could be healed. God is a holy God, yet you receive mercy and grace. I don't have your best interest in mind. You don't trust me. Look at the cross. He didn't spare his son. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You want evidence or proof of God's trustworthiness? You want evidence of his love for you? There you have it. Can't be better than that. 
then why would God let this happen? Why would God let that happen? Or why would God tell me to do something that, that I don't always understand? Or it doesn't make sense to me. Why would God tell David not to count his own armies? And I could give you several answers to those questions, but the only answer I think that really counts is this. I don't know. I don't know for sure. But that makes sense to me because God is God and I'm not. But, but, Though I don't always know why, I do know the God who knows why. I do know this God. Because this God is the one who gave himself for someone like me. Because I know him. He's trustworthy. And though I don't know why in every situation, he's worthy of my obedience. If you're having a hard time following and obeying God, Look at the cross again. Pray. Pray, not just for answers, but for faith. To trust and obey in a God who says to you, I promise you, I promise you, I will love you, I will never leave you, I've given my life for you, and I do have your best interests in mind. Trust in me, and you'll see.